knuckled my worry away until that black hole of pain became your hurting duck. That kind of baggage is damage. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your baby Yoda fanboy and A People's Theology host, Mason Meniga. In this episode, I talk with Cutter Calloway. Cutter is assistant professor of theology and culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Courier. Courier is an indie pop artist from Nashville. You can get connected with both Cutter and Courier and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. No, forgot to clean the window of opportunity. I couldn't see through it. He flew in it, gave you what you wanted, gave you what I didn't know how to. And the worst part about it is I do now. Now that you're so far away, and I can hear you laughing across the Milky Way. Today I have Cutter Calloway, and Cutter is the Associate Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary, and uh, you are also the recent author, and I want to make sure I get the title right, the recent author of The Aesthetics of Atheism, Theology, and Imagination in Contemporary Culture. Uh, Cutter, I'm a huge fan of the book. Uh, I, I love dabbling a little bit into radical theology, and uh, as I just mentioned to you, I, I have read a little bit of Barry Taylor's work, so uh, I was really interested in seeing uh, your work kind of intersect and in be placed in conversation with with Barry's stuff, and so I really enjoyed it. I'm sure there's lots of things to who you are, Cutter, but I'm curious, who is Cutter Calloway to Cutter Calloway? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm an enigma wrapped in a question, wrapped in a, uh, confusing metaphor. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, it, I'm a, I'm just a guy trying to make it in the world and, uh, I'm probably overly curious about too many things and mm. that leads me down paths of whether it's intellectual, philosophical, religious inquiry that, um, I find fun and enjoyable, um, but also acknowledge or not either for the faint of heart and or sometimes are just not interesting to some people. So mm. um, I, I find probably most interesting a, uh, the, the sort of collision of ideas that come with either like interdisciplinary or um, sort of outside of uh, bounded sets thinking that comes with, whether it's collaboration like with Barry um, or just sort of creative thinking. I, I'm, I often say, I know it's a kind of intelligence, but I, I actually don't think I'm all that smart of a person, mm. even though I work in the academy. But I think I'm creative, meaning I just put things together that most people don't. Mm. Um, I don't know why they don't, because that's some of the most fun things. So you put a couple of things together that usually don't belong. And what is produced from that uh, seems to be unexpected, exciting, fun. And uh, it's really the only skill set I've got in life. So I just, <laughs> I just keep doing it. So, Well, good thing there's a, a paycheck 
that uh, is included right. in that too. <laughs> what is something that you learned about maybe theologically that you didn't know before as you wrote the book? So I'm sure you're very well schooled in, in theology, but maybe there was something that emerged uh, as a new theological insight as you wrote the book. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, probably the the things that emerged in, um, and spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read the book, but it doesn't matter, you'll still enjoy it. Um, when uh, I go through all the, the Markin uh, analyses, mm. so we, we basically go through and do a non, let's see, an atheological read of the Gospel of Mark and through these different uh, sort of vignettes. And I had the most fun probably writing those because um, they were the least kind of set in my mind going into, you know, you outline a book, you have some ideas of where you think something's going to go. Um, and those were probably the most experimental as I was writing them. And so because of that, I think generated some interesting insights I hadn't expected and um, just were fun. I was like, well, that's a really kind of interesting way. I don't think I've heard of other people exploring the gospel in that way. Mm. Um, and so because of it, Basically, all of each of those sections um, were the parts that I that probably reflect the most kind of aha moments for me, hmm. um, and and especially, uh, I'd say this notion of um, what it means for at least in the gospel for um, us to think of the uh, the abandonment of God by God um, mm -hmm. and. But that sort of is the initial thought that started the whole book and then was became kind of that through line. And it, it got different expression in each of those uh, Markin passages. Yeah. That particular episode in Mark seems more pronounced than the other, uh, like, res or, uh, de death on the cross episodes in the other yeah. Gospels. Um, that sort of abandonment of, of God um, yeah. in Jesus. It, it certainly feels most pronounced in that in that particular narrative, which is why I like the Mark and gospel much more than the others. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it is part of why we have more than one gospel. I mean, that is a thing mm -hmm. um, that, that these were written to different audiences with different agendas for different purposes, but all telling or reflecting on a like similar story. So it, it makes sense to me that um, at different times uh, people and in different locations, people resonate with the different tellings of the gospel more or less. Um, so I'm, I'm with you. I think that, that's really interesting. The, the, you know, the notion that there is people run away in fear and trembling. That's mm. how a gospel ends. The tomb is empty. <laughs> the tomb is empty. Uh, you know, that, so, um, that actually, that was really fun. I thought too, just because of the nature of it, but thinking through the, the various sort of grotesqueries of, of the empty tomb as, as horror fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, again, I just, uh, we didn't plan on that initially and, uh, be, to be able to do that was just a kind of fun thought experiment. That's great. This isn't your first book. You've written other books about TV and film and even marriage. Uh, yeah. And now, you know, <laughs> you're writing a book on atheism. So you've kind of gotten a broad array of, of topics that you've written on. But what was something maybe you learned about yourself in particular writing this book? Hmm. Um, I, ooh, something about myself. Um, I think, uh, how, can, how would I say this? Um, so sometimes I feel uh, theologically spineless, um, mm. but I think that's sometimes mistaken for sort of a, a better way to put it would be generous, right? I, <laughs> um, as with everything, I mean, again, the, the initial impulse for the book 
came from this same thing. So it's not like it was a brand new thing that I learned about myself, but I think it was a reiteration of something I sensed. Um, and I'm just increasingly convinced that even as like, I am actually a professing Christian. Like mm -hmm. I, I believe whatever that means, I believe in this thing. Um, and, but to say that, um, I think in, in the contemporary world, especially 21st century sort of North America, there are a whole bunch of associations that go along with that, that I would not endorse <laughs> that most people think are really certain about. And one thing that I realized sort of in full with writing this book, and it always had been true, but it kind of came to, to the foreground in writing it, is that there are not many things about which I am certain. Um, mm -hmm. there, in fact, there are very, very, very few things about which I'm certain. And even the maybe one-ish thing that I would say, I have a, a some degree of certainty, is it, it in its own sense a, a sort of radical, uh, you know, that's a sort of Kierkegaardian leap of faith. It's not mm. even a, it's not even certainty isn't it, the right word. Um, and so if anything, what I learned about myself is I, I actually don't think it's all that distinct from how most people really do uh, perform and think about and, and live out their religious faith. Um, but it is true that I think there's not a lot of space to, to speak in those terms without people feeling like they're going to be kicked out. They're going to be labeled a heretic. They're going to, you know, like any of the other things that, right, that right. happen in, in religion. Um, but especially in, in today's um, sort of polarized context, that's the case. Um, so, so if I learn anything, it's that I'm, I'm more willing and more uh, feel like a, a calling, if you will, to say we've got to find a way to have that conversation and to be able to voice those mm. un uncertainties that are a part of everybody's lived experience. Mm -hmm. There are many people you could have written a book with. Why Barry Taylor? <laughs> well, uh, some of it's historical contingency. Uh, it's just uh, the fact that he and I uh, have some similar instincts. Um, mm. It also happens that I was putting together this project on atheism and I mentioned it to him and he said, wait, what? How and and it was starting as a as a course that I was going to teach, um, and he's like, "Wait, how did you get approval to teach that?" <laughs> I'm like, "Well, I don't know. I just asked, or maybe I didn't ask." Um, and so uh, we we just kind of struck up a well. You're kind of in that sphere. I'm, let's. What if we did this together? And so um, I'd like to say it was like a super strategic thing, but Barry and I have just been um, sort of colleagues and friends for a while, and and so uh, then I happened to do a number, I, like I do collaborations in terms of my scholarship and research. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's something I enjoy doing. And so you have to, depending upon who you're collaborating with, you, you have to both have some experience in it and know your partner really well for it to be successful. Um, mm. It doesn't always work. Uh, and so it's a little bit like marriage, right? Oh yes. Oh yes. Um, each <laughs> one you is know unique. a thing or two about that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but in this case, and it's true, in this case, um, there is a, a very, it is a kind of marriage where you go, okay, I need to know your strengths and weaknesses and, um, and my strengths and weaknesses. And uh, I'm not going to, this isn't about like fairness or equality. That doesn't really make sense. It's um, this thing wouldn't be what it is without both of us in the room. So let's uh, figure out how to do that best. And, and Barry is one of those, um, what I love about Barry is he is possibly... I mean, this is going to be overstated and silly, but he is one of the most creative, like brilliant theological thinkers I know. Mm. Um, and, um, and, and the way that we operate, uh, I'm a little bit more, uh, 
systematic or rational, maybe uh, and rational in a philosophical sense, not a like I'm rational, Barry's irrational. <laughs> um, but but because of that, it's an interesting partnership where a lot of the book emerged from us really just sort of talking through things. Um, our writing practices are different. And so he would uh, I kept like pushing him like we've got a deadline. We got to do this. Get, you know, get this, get this. And I mean, he would like binge write for stay up for 48 hours and type out something that's mostly incoherent, but little bits of like brilliance in it. And so then I would go and like rewrite it to, so that it would make some sense. And, you know, so it's just this really interesting, fun way to, to um, write a book and not just write a book, but to construct some of what we put together. Um, so earlier I'd asked you, it'd be interesting to know what you think I wrote or he wrote, because it becomes very hard for me to even say that. Mm. Uh, given the way that most of the book emerged, um, it, it either started with an idea or a conversation that was then written by someone else and revised by someone else and then rewritten. So um, there was a lot of iteration in there. And it was only a person like Barry that um, I think would have been kind of open to that. So um, that's really why I picked it. And of course, as you know, he's, um, he does a lot of stuff in, in uh, radical theology and um, has some areas of expertise that are different than mine. So that was helpful too. I gave myself, it was the magic that I This book is about the need for atheism in Christianity. In what ways have you experienced an atheism in your own Christian faith? Um, I mean, most of mine, well, there's a few different versions, I guess. Um, one would be the kind of uh, basic, what I would call protest atheism. Actually, Moltmann would call it protest atheism. Mm. Uh, that it's the, you know, the, the Eli Weissel sort of um, in Night, I don't know if you've read this novel, where he's like, you know, looking up at the gallows in, during the Jewish Holocaust mm. in a, uh, you know, concentration camp saying, where is God? Right. Um, and it's God is there hanging, right? I mean, there, God mm -hmm. is dead up there. And there's, and there's a radical like protest of this. It ought not be this way. Um, and whatever we think or say God is, this reality shouldn't be one that should be allowed by that God. That's, that's a kind of uh, a protest against the sort of existential state we find ourselves in. So just yesterday, uh, here in Southern California, uh, we had another or another national, but it was here locally, mm -hmm. uh, school sh school shooting, and you know you have uh, these these kids running out of their high school, and uh, multiple people died, multiple people are injured because a 15 year old on his birthday decided to to kill classmates. That's that's a kind of thing that we should all protest radically. That is something we should say if there is a God out there that's the only direction to which we should um, point our cries of injustice and unrightness and, and just like a basic wrongness to what we're experiencing. Um, and that's that I experienced just yesterday, right? Mm -hmm. Like what, what in the world, right? Like this is absurd and obscene and offensive to, to name or to say God in that is, is a kind of obscenity um, that we all need to just acknowledge um, that's, that's in play. 
On the other hand, um, but that still is a kind of atheism that assumes there actually is a God to whom you're going to direct those <laughs> protests. Um, the other kind of more, I guess, uh, contemporary version, I mean, I think that's long existed. There's, there's, you know, religious traditions, both the Jewish, the Christian, etc., cetera, um, have that as a part of it. Right. Uh, the other side is the kind of, uh, the, the more mo- modern, not even the right word, the more contemporary kind of denial of anything beyond ma- the material. Um, and that is actually a question I continually run up against. I'm actually in the middle of a, a second PhD in uh, empirical, like experimental science, psychological science. Hmm. Um, and there's a kind of base, uh, base level methodological naturalism um, that there just is nothing beyond the observable world um, that, that kind of reigns. That's the prevailing uh, commitment of most of the natural sciences. So we exist in this society where the sort of base level assumptions is that there is nothing beyond the, the tangible world we can see and taste and touch. Um, and, and with that comes a certain kind of approach to life and existence that um, is hard to discount. Um, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a person shaped by those kind of realities mm-hmm. that I go, well, sometimes it really just doesn't seem like there is anything else. Uh, you know, what? <laughs> it does seem kind of random and chaotic and, and I, I can't just ignore that. Um, right. The th- sort of third thing, and it's not exactly there's three, but the third is probably more, um, and this is kind of an inverted thing, um, but it's the this dual kind of paradox of just my own personal, uh, so I'm not thinking like society or, you know, how our contemporary cultural imaginary, anything like that, but just me as Cutter as a human. Um, in the moments of sort of my most profound kind of pain or suffering, I... I get, and this is one of the re, one of the animating things behind the book too. Is um, I have come to the place of sort of like the bottom, the rock bottom, um, where you go. I don't think this life is worth pursuing anymore. Mm. Um, and those moments of of then saying, so what? What would be the reason I would just keep going on? Um, for whom, to what end, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those are the moments that are probably the most profound kind of atheistic moments in, in my just personal mm. life and journey. At the same time, what I've found is, and this is what's odd, I just find this odd and I don't have an explanation for it, is so I fully get all of the friends and relatives and, and people that are in my life that have uh, not ended their life, but have mm-hmm. then made the choice of saying, given that kind of suffering, I've decided there is there is no God. Mm. I'm I'm choosing a non-theistic option for my life. I haven't felt compelled to do that. I haven't felt released to do that. Um, in part because I find the alternative. So you know, many people say uh, the sort of theodicy question is the reason that they're an atheist. Um, mm. And I find the non-theistic you know explanation for suffering way less fulfilling or satisfying mm. than a theistic one. Theistic one is problematic. It is not. <laughs> it doesn't answer all the things. We've got problems. But I go, you're not off. You don't, you don't get the, the question of suffering is not answered by getting rid of God. Um, mm. And in many ways, my question then turns back on my fellow humans. And I go, how on earth could you con- try to convince me to continue pursuing this existence, given how awful it is most of the time? 
Hmm. Um, when, you know, you look at the sort of global crises that most people face. And I live in the North American 21st century. I've got it great, right? I mean, um, most humans have a, have a, a pretty awful road uh, or hill to climb, whatever more you use. And for me to sit, to look at them and go, you should continue pursuing life and pursuing this project of human development. Uh, for what? Like, what am I asking them to do? What kind mm. of suffering am I asking them to endure? And, and for what end? And that to me is one of the, the core paradoxes. It, that moment is where I'm at my, my most atheistic, but it's also the only really reason why I would say I continue to hold on to a theistic faith um, is because I haven't found an alternative that does anything better. Um, mm. And so, <laughs> and some people would say, well, that's not a very full-throated appeal for the gospel. Um, <laughs> and it's not, but that's, that's me, right? So that's all you got. The lens through which you explore the need for atheism and Christianity is through aesthetics and culture. Why use aesthetics and culture as the means by which you explore that? Yeah, that's a good question. I, a couple reasons. Um, one is it's just, it's a reflection of just my kind of methodology as a, as a researcher, as a theologian, religious studies scholar, scholar, et cetera, and sort of a cultural critic. Um, I generally start with start in the concrete, like on the ground realities, and mm -hmm. that is um, the the products, the artifacts, the things that we make of our world. It's very hard to think about like any sort of phenomenon or movement or or general consensus or idea, a zeitgeist, if you will, without getting at the level of okay, here's here's the thing I'm talking about, right? So here's an expression of what I'm talking about, um, and I just find it more helpful to start from the ground up. So that's one thing. So then if you're going to get to what does it mean to be a slash theistic, um, and that is one, our, our title should be the aesthetics of a slash theism. Um, we went back and forth with the publisher and they didn't want to add the slash because of Google searches, et cetera. But um, it's not actually, we're not strictly talking about uh, what we would know as classic atheism. It's really a subversion of this notion mm -hmm. of what it means to believe, what it means to, to think thoughts or uh, do things that are related to the divine or not, or the sacred or whatever. Um, and most of those conversations are best expressed, um, at least from Barry in my perspective, um, in terms of aesthetics, uh, in terms of the, the sensibilities that people bring to their artistic productions. Um, and so if we're gonna really find a way to both identify the actual thing we're talking about, but then also um, to unpack it in some sort of way that's helpful, that sheds some light on some other things like the gospel and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's best to go, let's actually uh, speak in concrete terms instead of abstract terms. Um, and so for that reason, we thought both uh, methodologically, but then also culturally, it seems that some of the, the storytellers, the artists, the, the people that are generating culture are the ones that are kind of on the leading edge of grappling with this ever emerging sensibility mm. in the contemporary world. And you don't see that in other spheres. Um, I think it might be reflected in let's say politics or um, I, I don't know, some other discipline or whatever sociological type things, but we just find it most um, uh, readily apparent uh, in this, this domain. It also happens that the two of us are most equipped to talk about that domain. So <laughs> maybe we're, you know, seeing the thing that we want to see in it. Um, but, but that is kind of where we, we traffic most of the time. 
um, or where we operate most of the time. And so uh, it's the stuff that we are most comfortable um, trafficking in. Just if I give up my power, I give up the thing that binds me to my people. And why were the tears I cried? I'm not sure if it was you or Barry that had this quote, um, but there's this great quote in the book that says, if theology has any hope of addressing the profound crises that constitute modern life, it must learn to articulate Christianity in ways that contemporary people can understand and ultimately find meaningful. It is for this very reason that an exploration of the aesthetic dimensions of horror fiction is not simply an instructive exercise, but an imperative one. What are some of the ways in which people of faith can practically, maybe even in an ecclesial space, explore a meaningful theology through something even like horror fiction? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I, I will uh, take full credit for that uh, quote. That's me. Um, so, uh, and it, so it's a, it's a challenge. Um, and some of the question, I think, of, of the right, question or critique of our book is how does this play in an ecclesial setting? Uh, in, mm. in all honesty, uh, does it even, uh, so I just <laughs> had uh, breakfast this morning with, um, uh, one of my pastors at my church. And we were talking about uh, a former intern that was thinking creatively about different kinds of, um, things we could do in worship with our church. And, uh, the example that he used was, uh, this person wanted to have, um, the musicians, behind uh bars or behind whatever to to and we were going to do things on like immigration and what does it look like mm. to worship on the other side of of like bars and chains etc cetera, etc cetera. um and and i just think of it, the the sort of horror of where we're at societally in terms of how we treat um immigrants and just anyone who is other uh and i would say that's a really provocative interesting way to think actually can you hear me still mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. if i if i mute this can you still hear me yep no okay i yep. just can't hear you okay i'm getting hold on i'm getting pinged uh, g chat and i don't want it to keep coming up <laughs> uh let me see if i can close that down <clears throat> okay so i think that's a really compelling interesting picture to create for an ecclesial community who is supposedly worshiping in a way that matters for life. Mm. And so these sort of horrors that we deal with should somehow be a part of that. Um, but the pastor was just saying like, that's not gonna work. <laughs> um, they ended up, you know, like how, what? No, on a, on a Sunday morning, we're not gonna have people, you know, singing from behind cages, right? And that's not, you know, and so it was interesting because not necessarily that I disagreed with them because I, it, there would be a like, how do you prepare a group to do that if it's so different than what you're used to? But I, I did kind of say, well, but there is a value, at least in that instinct. Like he was, he had the right instinct of we need to do something that, that draws upon um, some of the horrors that, that we encounter day to day and that, that our worship practices have to somehow speak to that and address it. 
we ended up doing it as a part of a kind of uh, almost art installation Good Friday experience mm. that we brought people through. Um, and so it, and it was, we even went back and forth. There were <laughs> even that little experience, uh, it, it bordered on like almost a, a haunted house type of a thing, um, in terms of where they put it in, but, but it was meant to be sort of a visceral jarring thing. Um, and we decided, okay, let's do it as a, a kind of good Friday optional thing. You know, we give a warning to the parents, like maybe your kids shouldn't do that, that sort of thing. Um, all of that to say, and I don't know if that's exactly where you were going with the question, but. To me, um, finding ways to say um, we need to uh, allow these kind of stories, these kind of narratives that call attention to the horrific um, uh, need to inform the way that we think about God, the way that we uh, worship God, the way that we organize our, ourselves as religious communities. Um, and if we're not, then we really are basically ignoring a huge chunk of reality. Mm. Um, and to me, it the fiction part of it helps because I actually would rather, uh, we actually just screened and, and had a conversation with Scott Derrickson last week here on campus. And mm. we screened his film Sinister um, and uh, talked about horror and fear and in and, and like theological terms. And, but could you imagine showing a film like Sinister in a church? You know, could you, what, what would that look like? And how, um, what would be the sort of output of that? Um, I think if it gets us back to recognizing the, the ways in which, for example, Jesus <laughs> being gone from the tomb should strike us in viscerally terrifying ways, mm. um, that that is whatever, however we get to that point, I want to see that happen. Um, the pragmatics of should you show a horror film? Should you have people behind cages and worship? Should you, you know, Good Friday service probably would have to be determined uh, to, to each community, each person, um, you know, accounting for all the things on the ground. Um, but I do think it's a, a kind of um, uh, instinct that we need to follow up on. And we have, again, the kind of artists and storytellers of contemporary society doing these things for us. Um, and right now the Christian community really isn't conversant with, mm. with that. Mm -hmm. Your particular interest is obviously in the inter intersection of television and film, uh, with theology, what TV shows and films have cultivated a space for you to experience an atheism? Hmm. Um, you know, I, I was most recently struck by, um, Amazon, has uh, a show everyone knows now won won some emmys uh fleabag mm. i don't know if you've seen fleabag i haven't but I, i've definitely heard that with especially once they won all those awards yeah um and it's just i mean one it's just fantastic writing and acting um it's it's short um so that you know they're short episodes the seasons are short it's british so all that's good um and what's fascinating to me is you know, the, the setting and the, you know, both the, the people that are the showrunners and writing and, and starring in it, um, inhabit a society that I think gives U.S. people, especially U.S. Christians, um, a little glimpse into a kind of future that we will soon be in. And that's, you know, a post-secular society. Mm. And I think the U.S. is going to do something slightly different than what the U.K. underwent in terms of its the collapse of, of Christendom. Um, we have a kind of a different history, um, but 
but there are going to be some similarities. But what we can do is say, well, what is that? What does faith or religion look like? And this, I don't, I'm going to have to spoil some stuff, but go ahead. I'm, I'm not going to spoil it fully. I'm going to try my best. <laughs> um, but the second season uh, incorporates a priest character. And um, there is a budding romance between uh, the lead actress and writer. She writes the show and everything else, um, and the priest character. And it, the, there is an explicit conversation between, uh, you know, the, the very notion of God is just stupid and absurd and backwards to um, I can't, I can't uh, deny that there is such a thing, that there is a kind of larger spiritual reality that um, underwrites everything we do. What was amazing about this, I think, this show is that it, it, it does both exceedingly well at the same time. And they're not, they're not like opposites. They're not on a binary. They're, in fact, they inform and shape each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it comes away kind of with, I'm kind of, one of the most full-throated endorsements of what I would say religious vocation that I've really seen recently. I mean, it's a really powerful affirmation of that commitment, all the while calling into question the very basis of (laughs) religious belief period. Um, And so that I just, I think it's both indicative of what, you know, uh, Barry and I were talking about, but then also um, an even like clearer picture because it's even more so pitting, not pitting, but um, bringing in both this atheist, A and atheistic components of life together and a really interesting kind of hybrid mix um, that I think reflects where most of society, at least Western society, is is headed. Today I have Blake, and uh, Blake, I'm a big fan not only of your music, but I like the name uh, of your <laughs> your project. Uh, it it feels really ominous. It it feels sort of mysterious. Uh, but Ooh, I like that. do you pronounce it cor- courier? I usually say courier, courier. Um, but like yeah, people say is it a northern a northern southern thing? Is that what's going on there? It very well could be. I'm not sure. Um, I'm from like Colorado, which is this kind of weird mix of mm-hmm. dialects. I feel like so. I grew up saying courier, but I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. It could, it could be something else. It could be anything. Interesting. Well, I, I'm really intrigued by your music because I don't know exactly how to categorize it. Um, a lot of sure. the music that I have on here is pretty easily like indie pop or folk, or I even have had some post hardcore bands and like for the most part, pretty easy to categorize. Um, don't take this the wrong way, but like some, like there's parts of it that feel like Ed Sheeran like, okay, yeah. and then, then there's parts of it that feel like almost even like a little worshipy. Like, I yeah. just don't know exactly where to categorize you. Uh, is there sure. a particular sound that you're trying to, to, to hit or, uh, yeah, or do yeah, you kind of I mean, like keeping it mysterious and, uh, sort of unknowing? Oh, I always like, I'm, I'm an Enneagram four. So oh, mysterious wow, is, of course. I love being mysterious, but, uh, 
No, that, that makes a lot of sense. When I, when I first, um, I live in Nashville now, when I first came out here, I was in the, the worship music scene. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I'm sure that as, as much as I've wanted to distance myself from that, I, <laughs> it, it hangs around, uh, in, in my music and I'm sure you can hear it a little bit. Um, and then kind of went from there into folk land it, I, for years. I was kind of like, uh, uh, kind of in, I don't know if you've heard of Andrew Peterson or uh, like some of the other more folky mm-hmm. kind of Christian artists, okay. uh, here in Nashville, they're, they're kind of more Nashville people, but it was in that land for a long time. And then finally, um, came back into pop music, which was, uh, I would say probably my first love. Interesting. And, uh, I think I'd stayed away from it for so long just cause I thought that there was maybe something just unintelligent about it mm. if i might be blunt um so once i kind of gave up on the idea that um there was something sort of inferior about pop music um kind of returned to it so all of those things that you just described yeah for sure um i think i carry all of it into kind of what i do now yeah well, one of the things i'm also curious about your music is you had a single last year and then i i took a look to and took a listen and you have an album from 2017 and yes. uh to from what I saw, you haven't released anything new. Can you talk a little mm. bit about maybe the different sounds that you were trying to create between that 2017 album and the 2018 single? And then uh, maybe sure. talk a little bit about some of the, the sounds you're attempting to explore in some of your newer stuff. Yeah, 100%. So um, this last single, uh, it, it, it was called, it's called White Tears. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh really it's kind of a throwback to my more my folky days to be honest Mm -hmm. um and that was intentional uh it's going to be part of a project that i'm currently working on with my friend sue ann shaw who i think you know yeah um but we uh started the idea for this project came to me late 2016 but um it it is going to probably be probably going to push myself further into uh pop um kind of just like mainstream pop sound Mm -hmm with this record, but there are going to be some, um, places where it sounds pretty folky, uh, like, uh, it will with white tears. So, um, it's going to be kind of eclectic, uh, which is, was sort of the feedback that I got from the 2017 record, uh, present tense. Um, so I don't, that doesn't really answer your question, but I guess it's going to be all over the place. Mm -hmm. Um, kind of exploring uh when it's talking from my point of view on the record i'll just say that um it'll it'll be pretty folky and then when it's um coming from other people's perspectives on that record it'll probably be a little more pop interesting is there an intentionality behind why that particular sound of folk is what you want for your particular um point of view and the sound like the more poppy sounds being uh more a sign of other people's perspectives is there a particular reason for that difference and why each sound has been uh given to that perspective yeah there there is um so when i first started courier the the name i go under now um uh it was uh, what i was trying to do was kind of create this um I almost called it like a concept artist where I just told the stories of other people in these songs. Mm. Um, And, and it was going to be a pop project. Um, But 
with this new project, uh, I kind of wanted to go in the same direction, was challenged a little bit by Sue Ann to um, uh, have some of my own perspectives on it as well, and thought that those would be in best, best embodied by more acoustic elements, mostly because I grew up in a very rural mm. part of the country, mm -hmm. um, playing acoustic guitar, uh, was kind of the, the stuff I grew up on, um, country music, more kind of folky stuff. So, um, I guess you could say that brand is kind of my roots. And so that's kind of what I envisioned representing mm. my point of view on the record. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I really love that. Uh, one of the other things I'm really curious about is your music is incredibly well produced. Like I'm, I'm, like I don't know if it's you that's producing it or if you have a friend or know somebody that's producing it. Uh, but regardless, it's very well produced. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the process of the production? Um, knowing you know that, especially in terms of pop music, uh, the production value is paramount to to making good pop music. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about maybe that process of production? Um, is that something that you're doing? Is it somebody else that somebody else is doing? Maybe it's a combo. What, what, what do you got going on there? Yeah, it, it's a combo. Um, so I started working with a guy named Lucas Morton here in town, pretty young guy. I, I would honestly say kind of a um, protege, like just way ahead of his time in terms of like his ears, like his ideas. He's just an idea factory in the studio, to be <laughs> honest. Um, so really we collaborated on that last record the present tense for it was probably close to a year um and we would just we'd go into the studio and we would just spit out ideas and um it was honestly kind of a uh chaotic process there, there it wasn't streamlined at all um and that was partly because it was his first project that he had ever worked on like ever mm. produced and and headed up um and he's gotten a lot more streamlined since then. So um, I, I had a single a couple years ago called Telescope and and um, we knocked that out in like a couple weeks and then White Tears was the same way. But um, really our process uh, is to sit down, you know, with the, it, it probably in my case, it was just piano vocals and then um, just decide on the instrumentation. Um, he can also play pretty much any instrument that you put in mm -hmm. front of him. So. At that point, it was just um, playing the sounds that we wanted and piecing the stuff together. And I would say with Lucas, it was always one of those things where uh, he would start, I don't know, hammering something out on the on the piano and some weird sound and you'd hear it and you'd be like, what is he doing? <laughs> but it's he's hearing something with the newest project mm -hmm. as well. Do you have an idea of when uh, this news project will come out? And then uh, when it does, is there any ambitions to maybe tour on it or do some shows with it? So I, I, I'm having a hard time putting a, a timeline on it. And, and honestly, like, I think most musicians were just like, if we're asked about time, it like creates a little bit of anxiety because yeah. we're just like, oh, I want to say March, but like, it'll <laughs> probably be like November. Yeah. Um, it honestly depends for me on the um, producer situation. If I can find um, someone who kind of, fits our criteria mm -hmm. um but um i would love to put it out in the fall to be honest um and that's mostly because to me the songs feel like fall songs mm -hmm. I, I sort of like um when i hear a record a lot of times it it seems to 
no, I don't know. I, I, I kind of hear songs in different parts of the season. Like I have associations like that. And so I think it would be a really good fall record. I would love to put it out in the fall. Um, I probably will not tour it. Um, I stopped touring five or six years ago. Mm. Um, and, uh, mostly because I don't really enjoy it. And, mm. um, it would, you know, for most musicians, that's kind of how they make their money. And um, I just kind of decided if I wanted to keep loving music, I would find different ways to make money and mm. not put all that pressure on uh, the music to do that for me. So yeah. um, probably won't tour it, but um, we'll, I'm sure we'll blast it out in other ways. Yeah, great. Well, I'm a, I'm a really big fan of the music, Blake. I, I don't quite get into pop music as much as I would like. Uh, there's probably a New Year's uh a new year's resolution that i have resolution <laughs> yeah <laughs> nice. but uh I, I would love to get into it more and i and i think your particular pop music is really helpful in in, in terms of uh catching my ear in a way that i i really appreciate and again i i'm just astounded by the production value of you know a small artist being able to produce as high quality of music as you're able to it's pretty impressive Thank you. that and like your your website and your aesthetic the whole thing is great like i i i'm quite shocked that you're not like a full-time musician you, you've kind of got the whole look down for it you've got the music down you've got a you've got you know the spotify and everything's working well i mean it just it seems all really well put together so it's it's almost a little bit shocking that uh, you're not like a full-time musician who's making good money out of it but i uh, you know you I all have to start that. somewhere right yeah for sure you know i'm 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 quite happy just kind of hanging out where i'm at so Sweet. i really appreciate all of that yeah well, thank you so much for for sharing your music yeah thanks for having me on mason i appreciate it How do you see the aesthetics of atheism being a inspiring and liberating theological work? Oh, well, I guess I'd first have to say, is, is it, or do I see it as that? <laughs> um, you know, probably my, one of my skill sets, um, if anything, if I have a good, if I do one thing well, like I said before, I can put two things together that don't belong together. Mm. Um, it may be that the one thing I've learned to do or developed the capacity to do is say what I'm pretty sure most people already think, um, but are often afraid to voice. And Barry has a similar uh, sensibility, um, generationally, and the fact that he's he's a Brit. Um, we come at it from slightly different angles, like the way we kind of um, invoke, uh, these kind of, I don't know, uh, norm, uh, disrupting ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, but both of us are probably at the core kind of iconoclasts. We kind of probably like it if people don't fully understand us. 
Um, I'll, I'll just speak for me. If there's like a room of people that they all agree on something, I'm going to disagree with it just because, right. um, I, even if it's probably a good idea and they're right, I, I, my natural <laughs> instinct is to do that. Um, so there's some downsides of that, but there are sometimes, especially when you're in a, um, uh, operating within a religious tradition or you're, you're talking to and with, uh, and among people that have been shaped by, um, Christianity in particular, um, this is a, a tradition that traffics in, uh, setting up boundaries, right? That's, that's kind of what, and, and, and that's actually true of any, uh, sort of tribe, right? Any sort of group that considers themselves, um, a subculture or a people, um, a lot of what they do, a lot of their practices and things are really like, here's how we did distinguish between us and them, right? Here's how, you know, you're a part of the group and here's how, you know, you're not. Okay. Um, but when you add this sort of religious dimension, it just becomes even more kind of powerful and being in or out has even greater consequences. So to, in that sort of setting, to say things that potentially um, lead to the disruption of those boundaries, the transgressing of those boundaries, um, is, I think, liberating to people simply because they wanted and felt and sensed it, um, but didn't think they were allowed to say it, to mm. think it, to, to even entertain it. Um, and that can, I've just found in, in all sorts of realms of life can be a very liberating thing for people to go, Oh, I'm so glad you said that because I've been thinking it all along. It's not necessarily a new idea, but it is, it, it's, uh, gives me permission almost to, um, be okay. Um, I'm not alone. <laughs> I'm not crazy. Um, and, and for all of those reasons, I think that is what could potentially come of this book. I hope it's what comes of the book. Um, what could also come of the book is just people writing it off and thinking it's absurd and, well, heresy in some ways. Um, I think most of the time we do a good job of, of hedging our bets and saying, okay, you know, this is just a thought experiment. Let's just see where this takes us. Mm. Um, don't worry too much, you know, um, but it doesn't matter. I mean, that's a rhetorical ploy and people probably see right through that. I think even those little insights might be... Um, uh, I don't know if inspiring is a word, but might be life-giving for some people mm. uh, who really are, you know, just modern people. I mean, they're they're modern uh, contemporary people inhabiting a space that doesn't make a ton of room for the very religious tradition they've inherited. Um, mm. And that's not an easy space to be in. Mm. Last question, Cutter. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Well, uh, you can just go to CutterCalloway.com. Um, uh, that's Cutter with a K, Calloway with a C. Uh, you can probably Google aesthetics of atheism and we're the only book called that. So you can, uh, that'll, that'll get you pretty quickly, or you can go to fuller.edu. Um, my stuff's up on there. I also tweet and Facebook and all that jazz, uh, and have a podcast, the Cutter Callaway podcast. So, oh. um, the one good thing about an odd name like Cutter is not a lot of us out there. So probably if you come across the Cutter Callaway podcast, it's me. Um, and uh, nobody's trying to rip off your, your idea of the cutter Callaway podcast. Uh, not, not yet, not yet. But so as, as sure as I say that someone's going to go out and, and do that now and don't, don't trust that person. That's, that's cutter Callaway heresy right there. Well, the chances of the one person that listens to this podcast doing right. that is pretty low.
Well, thank you again, Cutter. Uh, I absolutely enjoyed reading the book. Um, for those who know me well, know that I really love radical theology and to, to be able to read a little bit more and to explore more um, to the contribution that this has to something like radical theology is great. Um, in addition, I, you know, I'm a big fan of culture, specifically music. Uh, and so to be able to um, explore more of like how radical theology um and atheism intersects with something like film and like music is just a it's just like that little perfect uh spot for me it's just really well fitting so thank you so much for your work and uh for sharing a little bit more about it absolutely thanks for having me on it was super fun If you would like to connect with both Cutter and Courier and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Me too, working at a high stove through September One room blinking in a bubble, all that he had Some days never saw the sun on Yes, yeah.